A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Resistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Wars Against the French, which originally aired as a three-parter special from the 25th of July to the 5th of August, 2012. Welcome back to the series, guys, and to the fascinating era of history that we find ourselves in now. Today's order of business is continuing the examination of the French Revolution, to the point that Napoleon Bonaparte appears in our story. Last time we saw how the French Revolution came about, and what motivated its people to kill their king amidst palpable foreign shock. As the foreign powers looked on, we now find ourselves drawn into examining the international situation, which is where we will resume our coverage. But before we do that, this is a 20 second Patreon advert. So one, two, three, go. So if you go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and you can begin to support this podcast... From as small as $1 a month, but if you give more, you will get more back, such as $5, which will get you extra content, great merch, and even more. Who knows what will happen in the future, but the more support I get, the more I can expand this podcast, and that is what matters. Thank you very much, guys. And that was 20 seconds. That wasn't so bad, was it? That wasn't so bad, was it? (laughs) That wasn't so bad, was it? I'll probably leave the original thing in. But anyway, I will now take you to 1794. Thank you for your patience.
unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. And this I know, my lords, that where law ends, tyranny begins. William Pitt the Younger William Pitt the Younger was Britain's most important politician, heading the country as Prime Minister while France ripped itself apart. Pitt was, just like his father had been, a keen diplomat, and he busied himself in the years before the French Revolution with constructing an alliance composed of the Dutch Republic and Prussia, since Pitt believed that France was planning an attack on the Dutch East Indies, while he also feared a French invasion of the Austrian Netherlands. The Austrian Netherlands was in fact a hot topic in the years before the French Revolution. Many British politicians saw the need to create a buffer between France and Northern Europe, and the Austrian Netherlands was seen as a perfect solution to this need. The problems arose though when so-called patriots within the Austrian Netherlands began to agitate under Austrian rule, and this explains, as we saw in the last episode, why French revolutionaries later prioritised an invasion of the region, is because they believed that the region would be easily compromised due to their like-minded brethren there. Even before the French Revolution then, Britain feared that France would exploit the opportunities granted by this agitation and in the process remove the safety net that surrounded the Dutch and Hanoverian states. This explains the construction of an alliance with Prussia and the Dutch Netherlands, as the former were eager to form a better relationship with the British while under their new king, Frederick William II. The Dutch were practically dependent on Britain for their military safety, as was Hanover, because both were surrounded by states more militarily able than their own. Britain wanted to ensure Dutch sovereignty and Prussian cooperation, so help in this area was much appreciated. Frederick William II, for his part, saw the value of an alliance with Britain, as had Frederick the Great years before. France, while at this stage perceived as unstable, had still lost none of its reputation abroad. As Jennifer Morey in her book, William Pitt and the French Revolution, 1789-1795, explains. Pitt soon discovered through the system of British continental spies that France was trying to rouse Austria and Russia against Britain and Prussia. Internally divided though France may be, its diplomatic network was still largely intact and the Pitt ministry feared that this call upon the friends of France was a preliminary act to more overt aggression directed towards Britain and her empire. Although France began to slip into revolution by the end of the 1780s, that didn't stop its dedicated politicians around the world from attempting to take stabs at Britain whenever possible. We now know very well that the French were punching above their weight, as France was nowhere near capable of attacking Britain at this time, preoccupied as it was with maintaining its territorial integrity and holding its government together. Fearing the worst where French intentions were concerned though and unbeknownst at this stage to the great problems that the French were facing at home, Britain made overtures to Sweden, Prussia, Denmark, the Ottomans, Russia and Austria in a bid to keep France isolated from all possible allies. Pitt was at this stage hopeful that a possible continental system could be devised in which all members strived to keep France out. The idea being that Britain would surround herself with a coalition of allies and Louis XVI's France would be unable to challenge her across the world for fear of invasion. Such a policy, ironically in a way, was identical to the coalition systems that Britain maintained over the next two decades against Napoleon, and you might also notice it was very similar to the continental system that Napoleon tried to craft and use against Britain. 
But by this point, the idea of all of Europe cooperating on such a grand scale was a bridge too far. As we got closer to the French Revolution and Pitt received word that Jacques Necker was appointed as finance minister and then chief minister of France, things began to heat up. Pitt said about Necker in August 1788, I think we may expect from Necker's character that he will set himself in earnest to put their finances in real order, if such a thing is possible, and will surely be glad to avail himself of the necessity of a free constitution. Although France could be strengthened under Necker's rule, Pitt also recognised the need for change in France, believing that the country was long overdue for constitutional reform. Perhaps this was an example of Britain's condescending fondness for their own constitutional system on display, but Pitt had little love for the autocratic Anshan regime, which France adhered to, and which the revolutionaries were soon to overthrow. Pitt believed French politics was changing, and that because of Britain's previous revolutionary experiences, it was easy to predict where this revolution would go. He was in some ways right about this, but once the revolution broke out completely in France, not even Pitt could have predicted the extreme nature of many of its elements. Even when the French king was faced with execution, the British government didn't pursue a policy of intimidation, as the Austrians and Prussians did. Instead, the official British policy was a neutral one. London had little interest in exploiting French difficulties, or in invading the country to restore old order. Neither were options particularly appealing to Pitt's government. In contrast to her continental peers, the French difficulty was not Britain's opportunity. In fact, as Jennifer Morey explains, The British government saw no need to interfere in France's assembly, for France had already been rendered impotent by its own politicians. In Britain, so often on the receiving end of French-backed rebellions in Ireland, Scotland and America, the idea of sponsoring French dissidents was regarded with great distaste. In 1789, Pitt thought that a non-committal stand on the French Revolution was the best way to keep peace in Europe. Sensitive British projects were afoot in the East, and Pitt wanted no complications to arise from independent developments in the West. Even though the Austrian Netherlands erupted in a revolt of its own in September 1789, since that revolt was led by clergy, it was suspected, but not wholly accepted, that the French revolutionaries were to blame. Even if they had been, though, Pitt was well informed enough to understand the weakness of the French in controlling domestic, let alone foreign affairs, so the threat was viewed as minimal. Pitt even went so far as saying on the 10th of September, 1789, Everything seems to be going well for us at home and abroad. Pitt was far more concerned with the nations surrounding France than with France itself, and this is demonstrated with Britain coming very close to declaring war on Russia during March and April of 1791, for not respecting the negotiations that an Anglo-Prussian alliance had made with Poland. Far from wholly occupied with France as we might imagine London would have naturally been, it was Poland which also occupied a great deal of its energies. To put it in context, these were the twilight years of the Polish partitions, and Poland itself would cease to exist in Europe by 1795. That Poland started to become an issue now was explained by Prussian and Austrian desires to have the disappearing state as a buffer. On the other hand, Britain saw the importance of preserving Polish independence, while Russia wanted direct control over all Poland's affairs. Pitt addressed the Polish issue on the 3rd of May, 1791, after the Warsaw Uprising seemed to warrant some kind of intervention. He said, The establishment of a solid and permanent government in Poland would be advantageous to the general interests of Europe, and might act as a substantial check on the ambitions 
Russia may harbour in the west. But Prussia was not altogether interested in preserving Polish sovereignty either. King Frederick William II of Prussia wanted an Anglo-Prussian alliance, ostensibly as a means of ensuring Prussian security against Russia, but having seen the British effectively back down in the face of war with Russia before, he was becoming more and more sceptical of such an alliance ever being formed. After their cooperation in the face of French calamities and eruptions, Austria seemed like a better option, as Vienna had similar interests in Poland and Russia that Prussia had. It seemed somehow more natural to pursue an alliance with their German cousins, rather than wait for Britain to act on the continent. Prussia already had numerous diplomats in Vienna anyway, since an alliance between Austria, Prussia, Britain and the Netherlands had long been on the cards. The plan had been, eventually, to get an alliance between the four powers, but William wanted an alliance he could rely on now, and since Vienna was impatient too, diplomacy there would surely bear more fruit than in Britain. But the Austrian option was not all positive for William, since Leopold II, then the Holy Roman Emperor, was the brother-in-law of Louis XVI, so that Holy Roman Emperor couldn't just sit back and allow the unfolding chaos in France to expel their monarchy. Thus, Prussia was tying itself to an eastern policy similar to its own, but Austria's western policy was a bone of contention, and it seemed certain to produce conflict in the case of France. It wasn't until Leopold assured William that any action in France would be met with little resistance, considering the awful state the French army was in, that William became sold on the idea. So Austria and Prussia were, by 1790, tied together diplomatically in their efforts in France, efforts which sought the restoration of the Bourbon monarchy to its pre-1789 status. But this policy of Austria and Prussia alienated Britain, since Pitt had hoped that fear of the revolution would compel Austria to enter into an alliance with Britain. And Pitt had been right in this, because Leopold's Austria had feared the revolution, but instead of standing back as Britain was doing, Vienna decided to take a more active role in French affairs. This involvement of the Austrians is clearly seen in their aforementioned issuing of the Treaty of Pilnitz in August 1791, which, if you remember, demanded no harm come to Louis or his family. British public opinion was indignant of this interference rather than the treaty's contents, and Pitt remained a firm advocate of British neutrality as 1791 wound down. It wouldn't be until 1792 that Britain began to see the new revolutionary state of France as an enemy of its own and as the primary issue facing its policymakers. Thomas Paine, an Anglo-American author and revolutionary, wrote a pamphlet in 1791 called The Rights of Man. It was supposed to be used as a counter-argument against Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France, but its purpose was soon forgotten due to its scandalous content. Paine's key thesis was that if a government did not safeguard its people, then the people were entitled to overthrow that government. It was part two of the pamphlet, though, published in March 1792, which was the real source of uproar in Britain. It stated, after a long investigation into the American Revolution and all that that accomplished, that Republican governments were inherently better than monarchical ones. Monarchies led to excess and wastefulness, while Republicanism promoted physical responsibility and frugality, Paine claimed. Additionally, Paine argued that monarchies would always prefer war to peace, while Republican governments would always prefer peace to war. Paine's debates were not perfect, and in reading his exhaustive pamphlet, I found his opinions too often based on the most extreme examples. 
His opposition towards monarchy, for one, was based on the violence which could emanate from the deposing of such a monarch. Paine, of course, had the handy example of the contemporary French Revolution to point to in this case, and it is his use of the French Revolution, the way in which he held the French Revolution up as the greatest instance of natural order, overcoming the unnatural and outdated institution of monarchy, which caused first unease and then outrage amongst those conservatives in Britain who actually liked their monarchy, thank you very much. While it was originally written as an apology for alternative forms of government, as France was experimenting with, Paine's work had the effect of demonising the ideals that the French Revolution put forward and underlining the danger that the new French regime posed. Republicanism was suddenly seen as a dangerous idea and a threat to Britain's long history of hereditary monarchy. It wasn't just the pamphlet though. 1792 was also the year that saw France vote for war against Austria, and later, when Prussia declared war on France in support of its ally, it seemed as though Britain couldn't just ignore the situation on the continent any longer. It seemed more and more likely, especially during the late summer of 1792, that Britain would join Austria and Prussia against France, at the very least to ensure that she had a stay in the form of government which would be forced on the defeated French. But Britain's government and people were not entirely united behind the idea of war with France. Many in Britain had been radicalised themselves by the ideas floating over the Channel, and some were overjoyed when they learned of the sudden successes of the French Revolutionary Government, now called the First French Republic, in the mid-autumn season campaign of 1792. In fact, native support from Britain's population, which identified with the French struggle, seemed to threaten rebellion should Britain move to quell these new ideas in France. On December 1st, 1792, a royal proclamation was issued which called up two-thirds of the militia in Britain so as to lessen the threat of insurrection on their own doorstep. But by the end of 1792, foreign and domestic statesmen in Britain could no longer mask their contempt for... Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a French government which was so openly hostile and aggressive towards the old order the spark of course came on the 21st of January 1793 when Louis XVI himself was executed British public opinion was soon to sway against France as the moderate idealists outnumbered the more radical revolutionaries in Britain by a significant margin most were shocked there that the revolutionaries had taken their cause so far in France, but this shock would not last. 
as Pitt began to gather his cabinet together over the coming days, French representatives informed Pitt that war had been declared. The National Convention in France had voted in favour of war against Britain, with an additional vote in favour of war with the Netherlands approved the next day. On the surface, it seems almost suicidal for the French to declare war, while Paris struggled against the Austro-Prussian alliance, and while the British and Dutch had yet to declare themselves either way. Now neither Britain nor the Netherlands were in any doubt as to what action needed to be taken. The declaration of war demonstrated that the new regime in France could no longer be tolerated on Britain's doorstep. The French revolutionaries had to go. The French policy of drafting hundreds of thousands of able-bodied men, the levée en masse or mass conscription, was introduced in August 1793 in response to the increasingly desperate national situation. France was at war with Britain, Austria, the Netherlands, Prussia, and in March 1793, just because, war was also declared on Spain. The French Republic was facing insurrection by royalist and counter-revolutionary forces in the early summer of 1793, so pushing as many men into the military as possible was the only perceived way of taking advantage of the numerically superior population that France had. This is one of the key reasons why the French were able to fight a multiple front war for so long, since no other state in Europe had implemented conscription on such a mass scale. Upon voting for Levée en masse, the National Convention declared, on the 23rd of August, 1793, From the moment until such time as its enemies shall have been driven from the soil of the Republic, all Frenchmen are in a permanent requisition for the services of the armies. The young men shall fight, the married men shall forge arms and transport divisions, the women shall make tents and clothes, and shall serve in the hospitals. The children shall turn old lint into linen, the old men shall betake themselves to the public squares in order to arouse the courage of the warriors and preach hatred of kings and the unity of the republic. The numbers of the French army would swell to an almost insane one and a half million in 1794. But by 1793 its numbers stood at a still considerable 800,000. These numbers were needed, however, because as the French marched their armies throughout the country to suppress any counter-revolutionary sentiments, the coastal town of Toulon had been taken over by French royalists. Once the royalists called for foreign aid and an Anglo-Spanish force appeared off the coast of Toulon, down the south of France, the swelled ranks of the levied French armies went to greet them. The nations of Europe were taking their first steps towards warfare in a scale they had never really experienced before. It would not be just a revolutionary or a Napoleonic war, but a total war, arguably one of the first total wars in early modern Europe, pulling in all the resources of all of Europe as they directed their power towards the destruction of France. Napoleon Bonaparte was at this stage a young artillery commander stationed in Toulon at this time, and he caught wind of the plans of the British and Spanish forces. Napoleon saw that if he could capture the hills above the British, Spanish and Royalist French positions, then he could position his cannon to fire directly on them, meaning they would have to withdraw. While attacking the British positions on the hill, Napoleon was wounded in the thigh, but the mission had been a success. Napoleon had forced the enemy out of Toulon and saved the town by mid-December 1793. As a reward for his efforts, he was promoted Brigadier General at the age of just 24. Those in the revolutionary government, remember, still controlled by Robespierre at this stage, mostly knew the name of Napoleon. Certainly the future campaigns in Italy were planned with him in mind. 
while the authorities in this new French Republic knew of his talents, few of them could possibly have predicted just how meteoric his rise would soon be. After taking Toulon and with France relatively secure from foreign threats, the decision was made to go on the offensive in France for 1794. The result of the Levéen Mass was that the French and their massive armies now had the capability to overrun coalition forces in Italy and the Netherlands. The campaign in the Netherlands was an unmitigated disaster for the coalition. During the Battle of Fleurou on the 26th of June, French forces 80,000 strong under the command of Jean-Baptiste Jourdan faced a coalition force 52,000 strong under the command of Prince Josias of Coburg. While the coalition forces attacked the wings of the French army who were holed up in the city of Charleroi, the French centre counter-attacked and the superior numbers of the French against a stretched allied line meant that Josiah's force withdrew in bad order. The defeat wasn't as bad as what came after though because with the withdrawal of the coalition forces from the Austrian and Dutch Netherlands, the French had a free pass there and they pushed on relentlessly, eventually culminating in a remarkable period in Dutch history as the Dutch Republic, in existence since its declaration of independence in 1581, was extinguished and replaced with the satellite French state called the Batavian Republic. Such a rapid French advance and collapse of Dutch power was made possible due to the divided and fraught nature of Dutch politics at this stage. For years before the invasion by French forces took place, the Dutch state had been in economic turmoil following the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War, which took place during the American Revolution as the other nations of Europe piled on the pressure against Britain. Much like the French experience, Dutch intervention in that war had effectively bankrupted the nation. It landed the Dutch Republic in a deep recession in the years following the war, and in response to harsh taxes, a lax economy, and the now absolutist regime of William V, Stadtholder and leader of the House of Orange, the Dutch Patriot Party emerged onto the scene. The Patriot Party was inspired by the ideals of the Enlightenment, and they desired a series of reforms which on the surface appeared remarkably similar to those espoused by the French Revolution. In many ways, the slowly burning revolution set in motion by the Dutch can be seen as a precursor to the French Revolution. As citizens armed themselves, nationalistic rhetoric was proclaimed from street corners, and grand ideals of equality were pronounced. At the same time, though, if you remember our previous looks into Dutch history, you'll see some similar lines being drawn, as the People's Party were perhaps a more hard-line version of the Men of True Liberty, otherwise known as the Regent Party, who had led the Dutch Republic through the 1650s and 60s. Against this Patriot Party was pitted the influences and ambitions of the Orangists, which had grown more absolutist and authoritarian since the capture of power by William III, all the way back in 1672, when the Republic was then beset by a French invasion. All these connections in Dutch history may seem a bit overwhelming, I realise, but all you really need to know is that, in such an atmosphere, William V couldn't maintain a proper support base, and he actually fled to the east of the Netherlands away from Holland. With the militias of the Patriot Party closing in, it seemed as though William's old regime was about to go up in flames, but just at that moment, William's wife got word out to her brother that she and her husband were in dire straits. Who was her brother, you might be wondering? Well, he happened to be the King of Prussia, Frederick William II. 
Within a few days, a Prussian army, 20,000 strong, had descended on the Netherlands, pushing away the militias and sweeping William V back to power. Those who resisted were arrested and executed, and towns that supported the Patriot Party were pillaged. Most of the Patriot Party fled at this defeat into France or the Austrian Netherlands. By the end of these events in 1787, it seemed as though the Patriot Party was bound to fizzle out in obscurity. Then, less than two years later, a revolution bearing remarkably similar traits to the old Patriot Party-inspired revolt broke out, this time in France. Emboldened and encouraged by this news, Dutch Patriot Party members followed the pace of the revolution in France and reveled in the possibility that their ideological brethren would bring the banner of revolution back home to the Netherlands and oppose the despised William V and his Prussian guards. Thus, the fall of the Netherlands and its transformation into the Batavian Republic seems like less of a tragedy than it may have appeared on paper. It was a revolution joined by their ideological allies rather than a foreign invasion that pushed the Dutch out of the war. This explains how French and Dutch citizens were able to identify with one another. To many in the Netherlands, the French invasion liberated them from their old oppressive regime, and for the rest of its existence, the French-backed regime remained popular. This event also eliminated the military threat posed by the Dutch for the remainder of the wars, first against the Revolution, and then against Napoleon, as the Batavian Republic would be replaced by the Kingdom of Holland, headed by Napoleon's brother Louis in 1806, and annexed altogether into France in 1810. It helps to explain why the Dutch were so easily pacified, in a state like the Dutch Republic, which for many decades had been grappling with the possibilities posed by liberalism, equality and freedom of action, the French Revolution gave their citizens the chance to fulfil their wildest dreams. Many Dutch would fight alongside the French for the duration of the wars. With one member of the coalition removed and with her armies fighting successfully in Italy, the first coalition wasn't doing especially well, and it seemed as though nothing could stop the French. At the start of 1794, particularly in April leading into the summer, Napoleon had been able to get the ear of the commanding general of French forces in Italy, a man called Pierre Jadard de Merbion. By doing this, Napoleon was able to provide de Merbion with the best strategy to use against the heavily entrenched Piedmont and Austrian armies. Using this strategy, the French armies were able to achieve stunning victories in northwest Italy, capturing towns such as Ormia, Oneglia and Loano, as well as capturing the strategically important called Attenda, a pass which controlled the flow of traffic in and out of Italy from the northwest. The crucial Battle of Seorgio was won by the French in April 1794, and the subsequent Battle of Dago on the 21st of September of that year were both crushing losses for the Austrian Sardinian forces. The Austrians and Sardinians had signed a treaty with one another on the 24th of May 1794 to pledge cooperation to defend northwest Italy together, but to no avail. While this had been happening, the British had sent ships to the West Indies and taken French possessions there, while the government in France, that of Robespierre and his friends, had now been beheaded and Napoleon himself had been arrested. When Napoleon was released from prison two weeks later, he was pushed into using his skills in the topography or map reading section of the French army in Italy, with the goal of completely removing the Austrians from Italy and hopefully forcing them out of the war. Napoleon jumped into his new task with a real enthusiasm, and soon he had the plans ready for a campaign into Italy, which would surely defeat the Austrians once and for all. Before the year was out, 
The first coalition had suffered another blow when a second member, Prussia, retired from the campaigning during the winter of 1794. As we'll see later on, Prussia, Russia, and to an extent Austria, were all distracted by affairs in Poland, as the Polish partitions were in full swing by the stage. The French would get more good news as Spain also left the first coalition around the same time, and both Prussia and Spain signed the Treaty of Basel on the 5th of April and 22nd of July, 1795 respectively. This meant that the original members of the first coalition set up to fight France, so Britain, Austria, Prussia, Holland, Spain, Sardinia and the Kingdom of Naples, now had only two major players left. The last two powers, the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies and Piedmont-Sardinia, were soon to be under immense pressure from a renewed French offensive into Italy. And all Britain did, meanwhile, or all it could do, was hamper French shipping and offer moral support to the Austrians. France was thus safe from external invasion for the moment, but internally the situation was another story. In the west of France, there were revolts and riots against the Republican governments in the Vendée area of France. This was due to the conservative, Christian and royalist tendencies of the population there, as many were accustomed to the class structure, which others in the country found so unfair. The result was that an internal war raged within France for three years, from March 1793 to March 1796, while the Republic had sought to quell that rebellion without shedding too much blood. Napoleon in fact was assigned to campaign against these rebels once he had been released from prison in late 1794, but he called in sick so that he wouldn't have to shoot French citizens. The rebels in Vendée would sometimes be supported by the British, but never enough to enable them to effectively challenge the Republic. Historians estimate that as many as 200,000 French citizens died here, in perhaps the bloodiest and bitterest fighting of the French revolutionary years. A change in command at the top and the establishment of the Directory to replace the National Convention meant that Napoleon was able to appeal to get a new command. He had tried to unsuccessfully before, but in late 1795, after practically saving the Republic in Paris from royalist forces on October the 5th, he was finally promoted to command the armies of Italy. A grand strategy was planned. Napoleon would march into Italy, while Generals Jordan and Moreau would march into the Rhineland and attack the Holy Roman Empire directly. The plan was to accomplish their respective tasks, then meet up and besiege Vienna, forcing Austria to negotiate and hopefully ending the First Coalition in the process. But Archduke Charles was on the scene. He was a capable soldier and he was able to halt and push back the advance of the French into Austria and Greater Germany, though this success didn't stop Napoleon from going on an absolute tear in Italy. On the 28th of April 1796, he secured a peace from Sardinia in the Peace of Paris, and he then moved on to attack Milan and Mantua, capturing the former and besieging the latter. Napoleon was able to destroy all the armies sent towards him by the Austrians, and he ended 1796 with great plans for the following year. He went on to capture Mantua on the 2nd of February 1797, and then after securing the surrender of 18,000 Austrians in the process, he moved into the Tyrol region, that bit of Italy which pushes up into modern-day Austria. This was a little too close for comfort for the Archduke Charles, and he sued for peace in April of that year. The result was the Treaty of Campo Formio on the 18th of October 1797. In short, it meant that Napoleon had achieved a stunning victory against the Austrians, and he had made himself a star in the process. He became an overnight sensation in France, and everyone wanted to be around the young Corsican, 
who reeked of charisma, intelligence and self-confidence. There was a real sense that Napoleon's star was rising not only in France, but it was really going somewhere. The Directory in France, now having crushed the rebellion and relatively secure in its position, urged Napoleon to deal with the last enemy of the Republic, Britain. In the next episode, we'll see how Napoleon planned on putting this final enemy of the revolution away. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.